the opportunity that we have this morning, having sung these wonderful songs of praise and adoration to God, having been able to lift our petitions and cares to our Heavenly Father, the opportunity to appreciate all the blessings of Christ. Truly, it's already been good for us to be here. But yet, as we give some thought to a lesson drawn again from the holy and divine will of, of our Heavenly Father, might we at least draw to a conclusion our series of studies on the topic of premillennialism. As we, in fact, proceed through that lesson, let me begin with an announcement, just emphasizing, if I might, our gospel meeting that starts in a mere two weeks from today. Brother Stan Stevenson from Smith County will be with us, and we're certainly looking forward to that. Our eldership, our congregation here has had that meeting on our, on our agenda for now a couple of years, and certainly Brother Stan is making preparation, and let each of us be making preparation as well, clearing our calendars for that week, if at all possible, making sure to pray abundantly and fervently for our meeting with great success, and certainly that the Word of God may have free course in the words of Second Thessalonians 3 verse 1. This topic of premillennialism that we have been studying now for quite some number of Sundays is a topic that originally in its selection was one that I thought would be encouraging and uplifting to each of us. On the one hand, because it does emphasize the simplicity of the Word of God, but on the other hand, because it sets God's Word against so many of the theories that are set forth by, by the fancies of the human imagination. And it is sad that so often it's those human doctrines that we so frequently hear. And so, as we have given some thought to this topic, we've had occasion to run Old Testament to New, looking at some of the things about the end of time, what will happen and what will not happen. In fact, by way of an introduction, those, in shortness, are the major topics of each of the lessons that you and I have looked at and discussed. Everything, in fact, from the need for proper authority to the premillennial idea as it is set forth so often by the human family. Following that, we looked at the Lord's first coming, noting first of all why he came, and then noting that it was not a surprise that he was rejected. Following that, we began to turn our attention to the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament and found that they spoke not of some millennial reign later, but of the Lord's reign now, the coming of Christ the first time, the glory of the church established as a result of it. Following those matters, we then looked more specifically at several of the elements supposedly that we are told take place at the end of time, like the rapture and the tribulation. We found neither of which is taught in the Bible, but they have unsettled the mind of so many through the years. In addition to them, we revisited Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. And we also noticed in that regard how that the Antichrist, the binding of Satan, the mark of the beast, all that are taught in the Word of God really do not at all relate to what we are told they relate to premillennially. God's Word and His presentation is very much different. Be it the Battle of Armageddon, be it Israel and the land promise, or be it our most recent lesson in terms of the contradictions in premillennialism to the Bible. Our goal all along has simply been this book, to rightly divide it, to understand it properly, and to use it to tell us about the end of time. As we close this series today with this 14th lesson in the series, 
we will have occasion to remind ourselves of some of the grand themes we have seen throughout the series and to embed in our thinking those matters that will prompt us on to a richer and better way of understanding God's blessing in regard to the end of time and other things as well. As we do that again, I've wanted to highlight, if I could, the interest that we had in beginning the series to start with. It is one of those matters that helps us see how far removed the thoughts of men can be from the revelation of God. Whereas the revelation of men and the thoughts of man are sensational, they are attractive and they capture the thinking of man, and they do so because they play upon his attraction to this earth. After all, there are so many who look forward to some time when there is actually supposed to be a place they can exist here on this earth. It is not to be so. And premillennialism plays on that desire and in focus and objective upon earth. And it does so in these ways. Though it is sensational, though in fact it is so very attractive to the human family, and despite the fact it's focused upon earth, might we quickly notice the popularity that results in it? The appealing character that is in fact involved with it should never be overlooked in light of this. Premillennialism is evil, it's noxious, it's putrid, and it will in fact condemn a person's soul. If you and I fall prey to this premillennial doctrine, subscribing to various and sundry elements in it, our soul is doomed because we've rejected the truth of God. In our attempt to highlight that thought in God's singular desire for our appreciation of His truth, those last comments on that slide are thus vital. Premillennialism is disapproved by God. His Word doesn't teach it. He doesn't set it forth. The Lord never taught it, and His apostles didn't defend it. No wonder today we must not either. With those thoughts in mind, what are a few overarching themes we have seen that we can take away from us in this series to help us understand the Bible doctrine of final things. Did you note the title? The Bible doctrine of final things. In almost all of our lessons, we have noted what men say about the end of time, and we've used God's Word to teach the error of that, but today let's ask, what does this book say about the end of time? What is going to happen? Can you and I be specific about it? We can because God has been. It is not merely our elders' thoughts or opinions, nor is it mine. With those said, here are seven brief lessons that we can use to appreciate the nature of this concluding elements of this series on premillennialism. One of the first things it seems that we can appreciate so readily is the very character of the God of heaven. His greatness, His loving holiness, the absolute marvel of who He is and what He has done. Not only has he portrayed for us in his book the way that this universe began, he has also given us information about the way it's going to end. Regardless of what the scientists might say, and they say much, God's word still has the truth. In fact, some of those opening comments, our God has infinite understanding, Psalm 147, verse 5. He spoke this world into its existence, Psalm 33, 6, and he reigns over it in majesty until this day. No wonder he thus has the exclusive right to state the way that it will end. Science does not know. There are theories and there are speculations and there are presentations of models. Many of them, I might add, contradict God's word. 
It is God who has the absolute sovereign right to dictate in fullness what shall happen with regard to his creation. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are made were not made of things which do appear. If he was able to speak it into existence out of nothing, he and he alone has specified the way in which it will be brought to dissolution. That thought with regard to God helps us understand then, God does not need to use that which is sensational. Let it be noted, book publishing companies enjoy the sensational because it sells more books. God doesn't need the sensational. He is not swayed by it, nor does he fall beneath the sway of it. And may you and I not be given to that sole consideration either. In the Old Testament, there was a gentleman who did seem to enjoy the sensational. His name was Naaman. Wasn't it true that he was inflicted with that dreaded disease known as leprosy in 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 1? And when he came to realize by word of others that there was a prophet in Israel who could in fact recover him of the leprosy, he went resting assured that something great would be done over him. In fact, the text in verses 10 and 11 of that chapter tell us, he said, surely I thought the prophet would come and do something great over me. When all that Elisha had said was, he sent a messenger, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River, and thou shalt be clean. Nothing sensational. Nothing that was overtly attractive to the character of man other than the humble submissiveness of what he had said. It remains so with respect to premillennialism, doesn't it? God doesn't need the sensational. He's the sovereign ruler over it all anyway. And in regard to language like that, doesn't that turn our attention to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is not overtly sensational according to what men would say. It simply involves the heartfelt response of a soul sick in sin to the loving favor of a God of heaven who sent his son to die for him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3 verse 16. Thus, when we read of Paul's explanation of that plan of salvation in Romans 6, we see a heart recognizing it was sick in sin who simply responded in baptism so that the sins could be washed away. Nothing is said about turning cartwheels in a church building and proclaiming some high and holy experience. The experience is the forgiveness of sin available through the shed blood of the Savior. And that ought to be enough. And thus, God doesn't rest upon sensationalism. And as you and I give thought to premillennialism, neither ought we. Because note in that second lesson, inasmuch as sensationalism has played such a dramatic role in the development of many theories in religion, notice how opposite to that we are taught in Colossians 2. You and I should be governed by the simple truths set forth in the Scriptures. And in Colossians 2, verses 7 and 8, we read, that you and I, following Christ, are to be rooted and grounded in faith. Isn't that an interesting way of presenting it? Rooted and grounded. That is to say, our roots need to run deep in the truth of that which God has revealed. So much so that he went on to describe, not given to the rudiments of the world. After all, the speculations of men, the rudiments of the world, run counter to the revelation of God. It is so in premillennialism. 
And it is so in any other religious doctrine. Might we thus notice that in Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, we have a record of some who were motivated by emotionalism and motivated by the desires of the heart in terms of emotion. But what was it that God used in description of them? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What do we encounter there? A group of people who had zeal. Did they have energy? Absolutely. Did they have fervor? Without a doubt. Did they have an excitement about that which they were doing? No question. But were they wrong? Absolutely. They had a zeal, but it was not guided by the truth of God, and therefore they were in error. Paul said his heart's desire and prayer to God was that they were saved. In that state, they were lost. May we never forget. Emotionalism alone, no matter how sincere one may be, emotionalism alone is no guide to truth. Thus, with regard to premillennialism, we've looked at enough passages that help us see its error. Let's not be persuaded by it, to follow into it, to proceed to accept some of its teaching. The third lesson, God's only revelation today is this wonderful book that you and I recognize as the Holy Scriptures. As you can see, the Bible is God's only religious revelation. And it must be rightly divided. To simply accept what someone says about it can be eternally damning. To accept what someone has written about it is not the same as accepting it itself. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The understanding then of what premillennialism has taught us is that the ways of man are so far removed in many ways and cases from that which is the bedrock truth of the God of heaven. It is a monumental thing that God has communicated to you and to me. This book is not like receiving a communication from any person on earth, no matter how important that person may be. Be it the director of an international organization, be it the leader of a country, be it the one who is behind perhaps a tremendously good noble ethical work, this book is from the creator of you and me, from the creator of the universe itself, and the one who dictates fully and entirely what truth is. No wonder our study should be so thorough and so guided by the things that he has taught us. Perhaps a fourth lesson, though, is in order. In addition to these three that have begun our thinking, one of the matters we have learned so well, I would think, as we've come to this study of premillennialism is this one. So much of that theory that's called premillennialism is based on a certain set of passages in the Bible. Passages that are known as apocalyptic in their character. Books like Revelation, Ezekiel, Zechariah, portions of Matthew and otherwise. And what we have learned is that these books are inspired, those texts are important, but they are not the playground of a fanciful human imagination. 
that which is extracted from those books must be guided in harmony with the truth found elsewhere. We cannot just take revelation and use it to teach what we in fancy think sounds good. And yet in many instances, in a practical way, something like that is what has happened. When we thus come to a book like Ezekiel or Zechariah or those last six chapters in Daniel, we shouldn't ignore those books or neglect them. But the truth found in them must be very critically and longingly found by reading them in context and comparing to other plain narrative passages found in the Word of God. With that kind of thought in mind, notice Revelation 19.10. In fact, near the close of that interesting last book in the Bible, we read, do we not, about how that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophets. Thus, the prophets never said anything that will contradict what the Lord revealed. They never taught anything that is found contradictory to that which is found elsewhere. We must use all that the Scriptures have asserted to help us understand those somewhat more difficult portions of the Word of God. Isn't it still true from Proverbs 23, 23? Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Is truth, even in those books, important enough to you and me that we will purchase and buy it at all cost and never sway from it? That should be the idea. And that must be if we would be pleasing unto God. However, yet a fifth lesson. As we have looked in some detail week by week at the thing called premillennialism, we have found that there is not a single truth to be found in it in a detailed way. And I say that without apology, because we have substantiated it each week. There is no single truth to be found anywhere in the premillennial ideas that are set forth. As often as we have looked then at how scriptures are twisted, how certain passages are ignored, doesn't that remind us of passages like 2 Peter 3.16, where there even Peter in writing made reference to some of the writings of Paul and said that those things had been perverted by or twisted by others. Notice Peter said those are in dire condition. Any time that anyone perverts what this book says, they do it to their own destruction and to the destruction of others who might listen and believe to what they say. In Galatians 1 verse 8, We read this monumental utterance from the writer of old. On that occasion, he stated this. In terms of the simplicity of God's word, he said, If we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be accursed. Thus there is but one gospel. It alone is pure and pristine, and it is that which is right. But any perversion of it, destroys it in terms of its purity. Thus, in this lesson that we can can quickly appreciate, premillennialism is again so evil in that which it is set forth for the human family. And I might quickly point out at this point that there are some Bibles in which the translator's notes actually teach premillennialism. One of the most famous is the Schofield Reference Bible, written in the latter part of the 1700s. If you happen to have a Bible like that one on your shelf, again, written by a gentleman whose last name was Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible is thoroughly premillennial. 
be very careful as you read and listen to the comments that the translator has written. In addition to that thought, what about a sixth element that we can take from our study in this series? This one is a highlight because it sets forth the Bible doctrine of final things. As often as we have used our time to focus on what the Bible does not teach in trying to emphasize what premillennialism's errors are, let us ask, what does the Bible teach about the end of time? One of the first things we can appreciate is this one. Time is going to end. The Lord is going to come back. He stated so himself in John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. In addition to there, on that occasion when he ascended back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, were there not angelic visitors who on that occasion told the apostles, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1.11 He is coming back. And on average, one verse out of every 25 in the New Testament testifies he's coming back. That's pretty frequent testimony, isn't it? On average, one verse out of every 25 in the New Testament heralds the fact he's coming back. However, in addition to noting that, might we quickly affirm there will be no signs of his coming. There will be no way someone can figure out the hour and the day and the year when he's coming back. We know that because in Mark 13, 32 and Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, he explicitly said there will be no signs of my coming. And thus any person who thinks that he or she has been able to deduce by scholarly research or by otherwise calculation the time of his coming are sorely in error. He said, I will be coming back like a thief in the night. Paul affirmed the same in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. As surely as then there will be no signs of that coming. Notice what else is quickly then on our mind. On that occasion... We are taught that there will be some humans yet alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and following, as well as not only the book of Matthew, but the book of Mark as well. Those things help us see that those who are alive will not have any advantage. It's not as if they will have some period of 30 minutes or an hour to go get baptized if they haven't taken care of it. For we learn in 1 Corinthians 15... They will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Every indication is that that twinkling time frame is less than the blink of an eye. It will be virtually instantaneous. They will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And to take on that form of immortality in the sense of preparation for eternity. Those things help us see there will be a general resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first. First Thessalonians 4 verses 16 and 17. All the graves will be open. Hades will be emptied. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. That quickly means that although every human who has ever lived and died, their spirit will flow forth from Hades, they will then inhabit a body. It won't be exactly like the physical one they had before, for this one will be fitted for eternity, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. 
that eternal body will thus have an immortality in the sense it'll never die in, a, in the sense of falling out of existence. It shall always be. In regard to that body, what else might we state? Jesus, in speaking about that general resurrection, said, Marvel not at this, the hour is coming. All that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Whereas we've seen premillennialism teach a period of seven years or a thousand and seven years, Jesus said resurrection at the same time. Acts 24.15 will affirm the same. And thus, when that resurrection takes place, the dead in Christ will rise first. All of us that happen to be alive upon earth, those that are, change in the twinkling of an eye. Then there will be those that rise to meet the Lord in the air. Those that rise are the ones, as they meet Him, those who are His saints, we want to be in that number. Oh, how we want to be in that number. Because when we readily appreciate that on that occasion, there is shortly then to be a dramatic separation. In regard to the evil and to the good that are therein present, the Lord, as He expounded upon this in Matthew 25, says there will be a separation. First of all, all will be present. No one will be exempt from the judgment. No one will be absent that day. You and I might see many on earth who are perhaps habitually late to things. They seem to have a problem being on time. Rest assured, nobody will be late to the judgment. Everyone in presence there will then be separated. The goats will be on the left, Matthew 25 tells us. These will be the ones to whom something like this will be said. Having had opportunities in life to obey, having had opportunities to respond, having had opportunities to do that which is good. However, the Lord will say, when I was sick, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And in fact, in response, they're going to say, when did we see you in any of these situations? And the Lord will respond, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And a pronouncement will then be made upon them. Depart, ye workers of iniquity, into the everlasting place prepared for the devil and his angels. So notice, they will be sent to the same place that the devil is, that eternal abode called hell. We noted earlier that the body with which they will be fit will be a body that is prepared for eternity never to decay or deteriorate, but it'll be, in fact, one to experience the inextinguishable flames of hell forevermore. Never a moment's relief, never a moment's respite, never a moment's comfort of any fashion or type. An unending, agonizing place in the fiery pits of a dark place called hell. The Lord described it in Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. In fact, Jesus among all the people of the New Testament, spoke more often about hell than anybody else. It's as if he expressly came to provide instruction whereby it could be avoided. But he said, Verily I say unto you, in essence, he said, Listen to me. Here's a place likened unto one where the worm dies not. The fire is not quenched. Does that sound like a place that would be pleasant in any way? Yet as one ponders it, notice how quickly that judgment scene portrays and comes about to this end. However, just after that, what about those on the right? 
Those, in fact, who are the blessed of the Father, those that are numbered amongst the sheep, to them on the right, they too had the opportunities and they fulfill them. Having been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ, they're able to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Without a doubt, the sweetest words anybody could ever hear. Can you imagine what it would be like on that day to hear him say that? To in fact look upon one and recognize that his blood cleanses and has cleansed and thus there is wholeness and whiteness and perfectness and all the purity of a newborn baby. It is to them, in fact, that those words will be said. And at that point, entrance into the everlasting glories of the place called heaven. Revelation 21 describes this place as a place of no night, no darkness, no dying, no crying, no pain, no sickness, no ugliness, no sin, no defilement, no curse. None of that's going to be there. And yet, to those on the right, you and I can quickly thus say, if hands were to be desired to be shown, no doubt all of us in our right mind would answer, I want to be on the right. And I want to have my hand ready to be understanding to hear the blessings, blessings of that day. But it is interesting that that has consequences for the here and now. The Bible says that there is no opportunity to change one's eternal destiny once one has passed from this life. Once you and I have died, once our body has been placed back then into the earth to return to the dust of which it's made, once our spirit has flown to, in fact, dwell elsewhere in Hades, our eternal destiny is sealed. In Luke 16, Jesus spoke about a rich man and Lazarus. And that rich man knew exactly where he was. He lifted up his eyes in torment. And he didn't like it, not even a little bit. In fact, he pleaded with Father Abraham to, in fact, allow his tongue to be quenched. But it was not possible. There's a great gulf fixed between us and you. There is no passage across that gulf. Friend, here and now is when the decision is made as to where you and I are going to be. We must decide now. This life is a time of preparation. Be it 50 years, 60 years, 100 years, it's a time of preparation. And once you and I have passed in death, our eternity is sealed. All that will be left is the ultimate verdict that judgment of heaven or hell. That will be it. But you and I have made the decision already. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 This life can't be taken lightly and taken rightly. To take it lightly is to meander through it with aimlessness. To meander through it missing the major point. But yet, with the understanding of God's Word before us, the end of time need not be a fearful thing, and it need not be encumbered with speculation and sensationalism, for the truth of God is too plain. And that leads us to the exceedingly brief seventh lesson. Ought not we be so thankful for God's revelation on points like these? Whereas men could wonder for a lifetime and never know what the end of time is like, we have God's assurance of what it is like and what it will be like. But, and we need not approach it with fearfulness. We need not approach it with an interior feeling of great dread. For as long as we're ready, and as long as we have obeyed the gospel and lived faithfully until death, we are assured of a crown of life. That text of Second Timothy 4 
was, as far as we know, the last writing that Paul made. It certainly was the last one the Holy Spirit chose to keep by way of inspiration for us. And in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6, the inspired writer there wrote these famous words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. When we remember that Paul wrote that, apparently not long from the time when he was put to death, for the cause of the Master, for the cause of the one whom he loved so dearly and whom he gave his life in deference to. He said, I fought a good fight. But he knew there was a crown of life awaiting for him. Do you know there's a crown of life awaiting for you right now? You know whether or not you've obeyed the gospel. You know whether or not you're living faithfully. We each understand that this word presents to us the need to leave aside all uncleanness, all kinds of living that God does not approve, and to turn our life over in fullness to following His way. That way begins, of course, with us putting on the name of Christ in baptism. It might well be that there's one or more in the sound of my voice this morning that's never become a Christian. You've never allowed the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins. We could take care of that today. The prerequisites are these. If you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're willing to repent of the sins in your life, those things that are wrong, to turn your mind around with respect to them and strive no longer to accomplish them, if you're willing to make a verbal confession before others that you believe Jesus is the Christ, we'd be honored to baptize you in this baptistry in here in a few minutes. Christ will add you to his church. He'll put your name into the book of life. You will be a saved person. At that point, your challenge is to live faithfully until death, not swayed by the opinions of men, not following the dictates and doctrines of the fancies of human imagination. Simply follow the word of truth to everlasting life. If today you have begun that walk, but you've stumbled along the way, perhaps to the point where you've brought public shame and disgrace on the life of Christ, on the church, let us pray on your behalf today. Christ has promised His blood can cleanse any and all sin brought rightly to Him. If we could help you today in that way. Let's close our lesson with one final verse this morning. In the 89th verse of Psalm 119, we read, Forever, O Lord, is Thy word settled in heaven. The things we've studied in terms of premillennialism are not human thinking. We've listed God's truth that crushes the human thinking. Let God's word that's settled in heaven guide your life. And if we can help you respond today in public, in public way to the faith, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.